You know, even if you believe in reincarnation, it's like, well, this this life is one that you have. You may have another, but this one that we're in right now in this body and in this experience at this time, this is what I have, and I I want to make the best of it. Hi, I'm Zoe. Hi, I'm Erica. Hey, Erica. This is our podcast. Well, what do we do on the podcast? Uh, we talk to wellness experts. Well, what do we talk about? wellness stuff. And why are we doing this? Because we want to have an inclusive conversation about things that you can actually use and apply to your life. Right. We don't think that wellness should feel preachy. We think it should feel like everybody can participate. That's right. So if you like what you hear, tell a friend. Give us five stars. They're all free. All of the above. All of the above. And think of us as your navigators on the bumpy highway to well. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening, tuning in as always. Just a quick note on this episode. This is a re-air of an episode that we did last year with the incredible Bozma St. John. And uh, just wanted to let you know that this was obviously recorded pre-COVID. It was recorded pre-Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, so there are some themes and topics that would seem obvious we should touch on, but we don't because this was recorded last year. Um, but Bozma is just an incredible example of someone who continues to impress and astonish us with her power and amazing just capabilities. So we wanted to share this with you once again. Uh, since recording this episode, she actually has moved on from her role at Endeavor to become the Chief Marketing Officer at Netflix. And she's also now doing her own podcast with Katie Couric. And we wish her absolutely nothing but the best. She's incredibly inspiring. We talk all about resilience, which is now even more relevant than ever before. And uh, just wanted to let you know. So enjoy, have a listen, and thanks again. Hello and welcome, and we are so happy to be sitting with Bozma of Endeavor, CMO at Endeavor, and a million other impressive things on your resume, which we'll (laughs) dive into. Thank you. And we could just clarify just for everyone else, the second O is silent, right? Yes, that's correct. Okay. It is two syllables in my name. Yes. So everyone, take Take note. note. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I love that. I would like a silent vowel. Mm, Can I have one? Yeah. Yes. We could put an H on the end of your name. That's not a vowel, but okay, Okay, whatever. Uh, (laughs) I kind of feel like it adds a little mystery. Yes. Yes. Like, what's that doing there? What's behind door number O? She's so exotic. (laughs) Yes. I like it. Yes, I like it. (laughs) Um, Cool. Well, I feel like maybe we should just start at the very beginning. Yes. Yeah. Uh, where are you from? Yeah. We just I know, right? You've had an incredible story. We want to hear kind of how you got kind here. Kind of from the beginning. And yes. Ooh. Yeah. 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 I feel like, uh, you know, when people say they're a global citizen, sometimes it's because they chose that as adults. My parents chose it for me. <laughs> they decided I was going to be a global citizen before I was born. Um, and so I had through both intention and sometimes by accident, a lot of moving around when I was a kid. Um, I was born in Middletown, Connecticut, when my dad was finishing up his PhDs, and we moved back to Ghana shortly after that. I was six months old when we moved to Ghana, so I have no recollection, of course, of Connecticut (laughs) from that time. And I lived in Ghana until I was about four and a half, five when uh, my father, who was in the government at the time, he was a member of parliament, the government was overthrown in a very violent military coup d'etat. And we had to escape Ghana 
my mother took me, my two younger sisters at the time, and she was also pregnant with my third sister. And we escaped to Washington, D.C., where we claimed political asylum. While my dad was still stuck in Ghana, he was in political detention, otherwise known as prison. It's a very <laughs> nice way to say prison. That is a very nice way to say it. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. But it was, it was really a turbulent time. You know, the interesting thing is that outside of just the moves, it's really about the psychological and philosophical impact that time of my life had on me. Mm-hmm. You know, my parents, I mean, they're, they're superheroes to me. You know, the, the things that they faced, the, there's no other way to say it, the, the chutzpah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. In, in certain instances, you know, to, to be that resistant, mm-hmm. you know, to what the world was throwing at them and to have the hope and aspiration that they could still achieve. I mean, there's just, there's no way I can look at my life and feel for one second that I can't do something. Yeah. You know, it's like what my mother went through to get us to the U.S., what my dad had to go through to sur- not only survive, uh, his imprisonment while his friends were being shot and killed every day, but to escape that, make his way through Liberia, get on a plane to Washington, D.C., where he met up with uh, a longtime friend of his who he'd gone to college with, showing me the importance of relationships that last, Seriously. you know, yeah. wanting to return to the continent of Africa because he, he sees the value of the continent knowing that he couldn't go to Ghana. So he went to Kenya. We lived there for a few years. And then eventually going back to Ghana, where, of course, the climate has changed so much that he realized very quickly that we couldn't stay there either. And then finally settling in Colorado Springs, Colorado. You know, it's just like it's, it was a childhood filled, of it, filled with adventure, mm-hmm. but also mm-hmm. one of real re- resiliency. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, you know, I think all of us have experienced this as a, as a kid, regardless of if you moved around a lot or not. There's always a time when you have to sort of introduce yourself. You know, mm-hmm. the time on the playground or a substitute teacher comes in or any moment where you have to reestablish who you are, mm-hmm. even if you've been at the school forever. <laughs> you know, we've all had that substitute teacher moment where he or she is going down the list and saying, okay. Is this person here? Is that person here? You know, and and you have to identify yourself. For me, that meant every few years, I was not only having to teach people how to say my name, Mm -hmm. but also reestablishing my identity. And what happens as a kid is that you find the consistency, you know, the things that you want to be remembered by, you know, the things that went well in the last school that you hope will follow you to this school, the new set of friends that you have to figure out, you know, the new politics that you have to deal with on like who's popular and who's not and what do these kids like and what do they not and how do you remain consistent and steady? Of course, now as an adult, I can, you know, better uh, articulate Mm -hmm. what those experiences were. But my childhood was, was full of a lot of lessons that have served me really well in my adulthood. Sure. Yeah, that's not easy. I was like, oh, I thought it was hard to move like two towns in Pennsylvania, you know. (laughs) No, but I think that that's actually, I think that's a really interesting point that you make about establishing yourself over and over. And it's almost like 
you start out telling a really long story and then the next time somebody asks you, you kind of pull out the details that are slightly more important and, you know, it's a slightly yeah. shorter story. But I do, I do think it actually carries over into, you know, into the way that we tell our story every day, which is like yeah. something very, you know, acute that has happened in your recent past that might have been really traumatic and awful you know, somebody asks you how you're doing and you're inclined to kind of tell them the whole story. And then six months later or a year later or 10 years later, that becomes a data point, but it doesn't become how it defines you. So, I mean, it's interesting that that really started for you at a very, very young age. And that's absolutely right. Yeah. That's absolutely right. And you get to learn also very quickly um, what people care about. Right. You know, what what interests them. Yeah. And you all start to edit or add to based on that information, right. you know, which is uh, a very, it's a very interesting thing to learn at those, that early age. And so. do your siblings have a similar story oh, yeah. that they tell? Are you guys co- kind yeah. of on the same page there? Yeah. 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 Pretty much. Pretty much. I mean, I think we are all very much like, even, even though there's, there's four of us, as I said, four, four girls uh, in, in my family. Yeah quite a dramatic household, I'll tell you that. <laughs> but all of us are very comfortable with strangers. <laughs> That's interesting. You know? Yeah. Yeah. We're all very comfortable to. entering spaces in which you don't know anybody or we don't know the people. Right. You know, that we can that we can pretty much go into any environment and feel comfortable. Right. You can adapt easily. Yeah. I mean, wow. that I mean, obviously has to have served you in, yeah. in your career in oh, a huge for sure. way. It's a gift. It's a real gift, you know, because we, you know, whether it's yourself or you've observed somebody else, um, you know what that's like, you know, when, when an adult even walks into an environment in which they are unfamiliar and sometimes how that shapes them. It has also made me very empathetic, you know, to people who come into new environments. Um, I find that especially true for people on my team, you know, new employees uh, or new team members. I'm, I'm ex- I'm really, really empathetic towards how they feel being the new kid sure. and what what I can do, what team can do to make them feel more at home. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So lots of impact and lots of different spaces. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So that was chapter one of... The Life of Bozma. <laughs> of the Life of Bozma. I guess we could call it chapter one. Um, and I think that there is a sufficient you know, healthy serving of resiliency sort of learned there. Can you talk a little bit about the next chapter? And as everyone may have guessed, I think what we want to really focus on here is this sort of idea of resiliency and... Both in business and in life. In I business think. and, and, and yeah. everything, right? So from from career challenges to loss to sickness to relationship woes to everything right we all go through it we all have yeah. something everybody gets their thing and they usually get it over and over and over again there's usually like just something around the corner so i think yeah. you know something that you speak beautifully about is this idea of resiliency and and how to move and you know through these moments of uh you know challenge to say, to, to yeah. put it mildly. Yeah. yeah. No, I was just going to say that um, resiliency is such a, it sounds like a word that should be like on armor, you yeah, know, yeah. or like something really hard, you know, it's like it gets you through the things. And actually, I feel like 
resiliency is much more viable than that. Right. It was it's a little more like Teflon, right? Oh. Less, yeah. Less armor, yeah. more like pop back yeah. out. And maybe even, maybe even softer than that. Yeah. You know, because yeah. resiliency is, a, is, is about being able to absorb. Right. You know, you absorb the thing. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it can become part of the matter. And sometimes it does bounce off. Mm-hmm. But more often than not, it gets soaked in. Right. You know? And so it, it is more like a big pool than it is like some tough armor. Mm-hmm. You know? It's like, yeah. toss a whole bunch of stuff into that tub. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and it's just like, some of it sticks, you know, sinks to the bottom. Right. Some of it floats near the top. You know? Some of yeah. it, like, you just, kick your leg one way and whoop, 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 there you go. A little something pops up to the top, you know? I, uh, I find resiliency much more fluid like that. And you're right. It's, it's professional and personal. That in the, in the professional space, for sure, along the lines of, you know, the environments that I've been in, whether they were ones of my choosing mm-hmm. or those that were chosen for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in, you know, more specifically, oftentimes, well, mostly, almost every time I have chosen a job or decided to go into another company because I was on, you know, on the search for something fulfilling for myself. It was, it's rarely about the money or about the title. Right. But it's mostly about like, well, what what am I going to get from there? Right. You know, like, what did you what did you sort of be proud? Yeah, I mean, that was my question. Is like, what did you seek when you first started on your career path? Was it? I mean, to your point, it's it's less about the title and the and the the dollars attached as like the feeling that you want and the overall experience. Yeah. Like, what were you what were you initially really looking to absolutely. accomplish? That was absolutely it. You know, I I came out of college as pre med. Um, I was supposed to go to medical school and I wanted a year to figure it out, you know, or a year between college and going to med school. And I told my parents that I wanted to move to New York. They were both living in Colorado Springs at the time. And I went to school in Connecticut and, um, I just wanted, I wanted a minute, but really the minute for me was like, I just, I just, I wanted adventure. You know, I wanted something fun and exciting. And so I went to New York. I was sleeping on a friend's couch and temping and, you know, just trying to get some money so I could like feed myself really. And some of my friends were interviewing for jobs at the, all the investment banks, mm-hmm. because for whatever reason, at that time, this was the end of the nineties, the investment banks were really recruiting from liberal arts colleges. I yeah. don't know why that was, to be honest, but everybody was getting jobs at like Goldman Sachs and they were paying well. Yeah. And I was up here like doing my temp job. And I went to an interview. Uh, I got the job at Goldman. Mm-hmm. And For what was the position? I, oh, I don't even remember. Something very it junior. Been like, um, yeah, it was like, very junior. Yeah. It was like some sort of entry level. But I remember that it was like, you know, my dad was really excited because he was like, oh, great. He's like, you can use that experience. And then when you go to med school, you'll, you know, know how, know how to invest your money. And I was like, wait, what? Hey, way to connect the dots. Exactly. It's like, for that much, dad? Like, that's, that's a lot. <laughs> but I left there, uh, you know, I left the, the interview and the job offer knowing that I wasn't going to show up on the first day. And 
when I went back to the whatever the crap you know temp job was the next day, I was just like, oh man, like what what is what is happening? Like I could be, you know, have a nice little title. There's probably a promotion somewhere in eighteen months. There's more money, you know. There's there's a guaranteed future. But I, I really didn't want to do that. I wanted to be in the clubs. I wanted to go to the studio. I wanted to see the art. I wanted to, you know, go to the park and watch artists draw. I wanted to sew and, like, create fashion. Like, I just, I wanted to do all these other things that really didn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. And when mm-hmm. I landed um, the temp job at Spike, at Spike Lee's office, it felt like a dream come true because, I was like, man, yeah, I'll get the coffee. I'll get the dry cleaning. Like, I'll do whatever. But really sitting in those strategy meetings with him, you know, reading the manuscripts, having all kinds of people walk into the office who I adored from the world of pop culture, because whether it was sports or it was film or it was politics, like everybody dropped by Spike's office. Mm -hmm. And it was just a, it was a wonderful place of just, entertainment and discovery. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to give that up, not for anything. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I didn't go to med school. <laughs> and that choice changed everything for me. Yeah. You know, so I've, every job since then has really been about, like I said, less about what is the title and what's the money and more so about, well, what am I going to get here? Right. You know, is there going to be something great that I can discover? Is this going to make me want to jump up in the morning and think of new ideas? I want to be creative and, you know, contribute. But con- contribution is tough when you are junior mm-hmm. and when you're black and when you're a woman. Mm-hmm. People don't necessarily take you that seriously. Yeah. You know, somehow your ideas need to be qualified by right. somebody else. Or 10 times more important than the person next to you who may have it a little bit easier, quote unquote. But how did you, I mean, how did you navigate that? Like what, what was, what was in you that said, okay, I know these things are all true, but. (laughs) I'm laughing because what was in me was arrogant. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. All right. So sometimes a healthy dose. Is it? We got to the bottom of it. That's it. (laughs) I still have it. I'm telling you, I know for sure I'm smarter. Like I know it for sure. Right. I, I would sit in some of these meetings and there would be, you know, it'd be like a brainstorming strategy meeting. And I'd be like, that is the dumbest idea I've ever heard in my life. You know, it'd be in my head, though. I wouldn't right. say it out loud. Right. Oh, it'd okay. be in my head. You wouldn't say it out loud. Okay. These are two. This is very well, important. Sometimes to point I would out. say it. Sometimes I would say it out loud. <laughs> it was but most of the time blended with diplomacy. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> arrogance blended with diplomacy for sure. <laughs> most of the time, I went into the conversation definitely with humility or at least some sort of feigned humility. Right. Because again, being a black woman in in these spaces meant that I was severely outnumbered. And so I didn't have any kind of backup. You know, there was no one who was going to defend me and say, you know, well, she didn't mean all of that, you know, because what I found was that my white male counterparts, they would say crazy things in meetings and then somebody else would clean it up for them. Right. Somebody else the next day would say, oh, well, you know, he didn't really, hmm, that's not what he meant. Hmm. Meanwhile, I got the feedback that what I said that was so bland was like, well, you know, you got to tone that down. <laughs> you know, it, you're a little aggressive. Yeah. No. It's, it's, it's hard for your colleagues to 
understand what you're saying. They would, yeah, they would say things like, it, it's hard for your colleagues to understand what you're saying because you come across so forcefully. Right. <laughs> and no one would ever dream of saying that to like no. a white guy. No, oh. never. They would never say that. And well, I was like, yeah, it's called passion. Right. Dummy. Compassion. That's what I have. I bet you didn't say dummy. I thought you didn't. I but, didn't say dummy. But like that is the constant struggle, right? Is the confusion between being assertive and being aggressive or being too, yeah. you know, blunt as I've been right. often yeah. accused. And I, I was also you facing the, the, I, yes. the very age-old trope, you know, of the angry black woman. Right. Yeah. Who I, I did not want to you know, the caricature existed and right. I, I didn't want to fulfill those stereotypes. And so I would find myself dialing back sometimes, but that's the thing about resiliency and, and my analogy with the water. It was that uh, I would take a lot of that criticism mm-hmm. and, and sometimes it would sit on the surface and I could like sort of wave it aside and move on, pretend it wasn't there. Uh, but sometimes it would sink deep. Yeah you know, and have a really lasting effect in ways that probably I would only realize a few years later. Right. Um, right. So you but, find yourself, I would, yeah. Yeah, but I, I would always try, 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 try again to communicate the thing I said. Yeah, part of it was arrogance, but also just a true love for what I do. Mm-hmm. And, and I knew that like there were certain ideas that I was like, well, I'm not going to let this die because it's just, so good. Right. I was like, I know it's good. I'm, like, so I'm not going to let it die. I'm going to say it in the next meeting. And I'll say it in the next meeting after that. I'll say it in the next meeting after that until somebody listens to what I have to say. Yeah. And but, you went and you had probably, an, you know, an extra dose of confidence because you didn't study what you're now sort of, you know, specializing in, right? In school. So yeah. how did you learn, um, I mean, marketing and branding, right? Was it just all on the job? All on the job, all on the job. Um, a lot of it, funny enough, also from being a kid, you know, and right. um, as absorbing a lot of what I had to do and the ways I had to behave when I was 12 and we moved to Colorado Springs. And so I had to get to know my classmates really well, quickly. Mm-hmm. And I was this strange African kid who had long braids and a thick accent. And I had to figure out who John Elway was and why he was so important, <laughs> you know? And right. I had to understand what the controversy was about Millie Vanilli, why that was such a big deal. And it was like, okay, Saria Bonali is going to win the Olympics. Why is she interested to these people? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? It's interesting. It's like, I mean, yeah, it kind of really did force you to edit yourself a bit more or to at least observe yourself from the point of view of the others that at the time, you know, maybe you were worried that they were going to judge you or what they were going to think of you. I mean, I think to whatever degree we can instill in ourselves and in children, like to not worry so much about what other people think, it does sound like, you know, if there's a silver lining there, it's that it actually forces you to, just going back to what we were saying before, like take a little bit more note of what your story is and your personal yeah. brand, which like you said, you started building your personal brand at the age of eight because you kind of had no choice. It's like, who am I? What do I want to put out there? So again, I mean, I'm not trying to like, you know, minimize the the challenge that you faced, but at the same time, it actually was 
uh, maybe a helpful tool in, again, and you, you figure out what story you want to tell because you get to tell it. Yeah, exactly. And so many times, you know, resiliency in these corporate situations just meant that I was so curious about the world and its connections and how things fit together that I was less worried about the no, mm-hmm. because the no was really quite, quite honestly, unimportant. It was really unimportant to me. I was like, okay, well, maybe the no that I'm getting on this idea is not going to be funded right now, but it's really smart. And so I'll just find a different way to say it. Mm-hmm. And that's how then I would get the wins eventually. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the wins wouldn't be credited to me. That was another lesson I had to learn. Right. You know, was that not being afraid. And, and I find a lot, of, a lot of women, a lot of us have this challenge of, or the lie that has been told to us to be humble mm-hmm. about our accomplishments. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh yeah, share it. It's like, why? Why share it? I don't, no, I don't believe in that. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and taking, taking the credit, you know, taking the bow right. when it's yours. When it's yours. Have you had any um, bouts of imposter syndrome? I'm going to go out on a limb and say no, but. Yeah. I know a lot of people <laughs> do. I, I know a lot of people do. I mean, on the surface, it looks like you have not. You've been like the rare person who has not struggled, the rare, the rare no. woman who has not struggled with imposter syndrome, but I don't know, not even just a little taste. <laughs> no, um, I haven't dealt with Im- imposter syndrome because, I think, well, there's a couple of reasons. There's a couple of reasons. I think, I, I don't know, you tell me if you've ever heard this, but I feel like a lot of black people say it to themselves or they've been told this, which is that you have to work twice as hard. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know? Uh, in order to get as much or to be as much or to be recognized as much as other people. Mm-hmm. And so I have always been overprepared, mm-hmm. sometimes to a fault, right? Um, that's, the, that's probably the struggle that I have, not so much in not believing that I don't belong or that when I finally get in the room, I sit there and wonder, oh my God, how did I get here? They're going to find out. No, I feel more prepared than everybody. Most of the time. Right. When if I'm anything, the maybe room, it's like the inverse. You're like, I deserve to be it, here more yes. than anybody else. Well, and not only that, I then over-prepare for the next thing. Right. You know, asking for the promotion or, or going for that bigger job, like early on, that was a struggle I had. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that I didn't think I could do it. Mm-hmm. It was that I felt like I had, to, I had to do twice as much to prove the fact that I was ready for it. Right. Which is detrimental because these other people were leapfrogging me. Yeah. You know, I was like, how the hell did he get that promotion? He didn't know shit about that other thing. Right. You know, and I'm over here like on a PhD level before I even put my hat in in the ring. Right. You know, that that is what I struggled from. Not not imposter syndrome. By the time I'm in the room, I'm in the job, I'm overqualified. I'm probably ready for the next job, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. So... I mean, I guess some of the question about imposter syndrome lends itself to like a bigger, a bigger thread, which is just around this whole idea of self-talk, which I think, you know, we hear a lot about now, especially because people are starting to understand how or embrace the idea that, you know, your thoughts really do shape your actions. And in some ways they kind of inform, you know, the opportunities that come to you. So how, 
I mean, how do you feel that self-talk has played a role for you? Even it's down, It sounds like even starting from a very young age, like you were kind of your own, you were your own coach in some ways. I mean, have, yeah. you, have you had to really work at that and, and endeavor, no, no pun, endeavor at it? Or is it something that you feel is just really in you and, and you're able to help Woo. other people? This is, this is a hot one. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the self-talk. I, yes, I have, I have had to work on that. I work on it every day. I work on it still. And it's not so much the um, perfecting the positivity, you know, because a lot of self-talk is negative. For me, it's like I, I am my biggest cheerleader. I, I need to tell myself all the time, even though I do have the confidence and sometimes the arrogance, it is very difficult, you know, being in these spaces, mm-hmm. in these corporate spaces where you're just not welcome sometimes. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I constantly have to talk to myself to encourage myself, you know, um, even just simply walking in the door. Yeah. You know, that, that Monday morning feeling when you're just like, oh, I don't want to face this again, you know, and, and knowing that, okay, girl, better put on those leather pants <laughs> and those stilettos, okay? Go and show these people, you know? <laughs> Like, I, I constantly have to do that. And when I, when I was earlier in my career, and sometimes now, but, but definitely earlier in my career, I would have to talk to myself during meetings so that I would speak up, mm-hmm. you know, especially when I've been shut down quite a few times. Don't want to leave without not saying anything. You know, it's going to sound smart. Don't worry about it. Half of these people say stupid things. Like, don't worry about it. Like, you just need to contribute something. Right. You know, there, right. there was a lot of there was a lot of encouragement. So the self talk for me was more about encouragement and and helping me to find the strength to make the move or to say the thing or to just simply walk into the room yeah. with my head held high and all of that. More so than it was about you know encouraging myself that I'm actually smart or that I have good ideas or that I can do the job. It was, it was never really about that. Right. It's more like that part was established and now it was really a question of like taking action on all yeah. of those things because it's like, you know, you know, you have what it takes, but actually encouraging yourself to now go after it is, is sort of the next step, I guess. Yeah, um, for sure. What about just reframing? So just on the career front, I mean, I don't think everything has been like, you know, peaches and roses for you on the career path and you probably had your fair share of struggle. But when you come up against these moments of just like, oh, I failed or I fucked up or whatever it is, like you truly, you know, you can't quite talk yourself out of it. You can't quite give yourself that like encouraging pep talk. Maybe you can. I mean, how do you reframe that and how do you change that narrative so that you can move forward and say like, okay, yeah. How do you forgive yourself, I guess, and just say like, you know what, that's part of the journey and that's part of the learning or whatever it is. I mean, do you have a strategy to deal with the inevitable failure that's going, going to happen at some point? That's probably, another good one. Probably more <laughs> yeah. than once. That's a, that's a great one because as much as I'm, I'm my own biggest student, I'm also my own biggest critic. Mm-hmm. I think all of us are. You know, that what probably looks like success to somebody else Sometimes I interpret it as failure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, because it, it didn't show up the way that I wanted it to show up. Mm-hmm. And so then I'm like, ah, this is the <laughs> worst thing ever. 
like, I totally suck. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know? Um, and that is hard. That mm-hmm. is hard. That is hard. And I, I definitely, I, I struggle with that too. But I think in, in recent years, I have been more forgiving of allowing myself to be in that space. Mm-hmm. You know, I think at, at one point, I, you know, I definitely was just like, oh, you're not allowed to feel badly. You know, it's like, okay, failure, fantastic. Fall down seven, get up eight, keep going, get up, blah, blah, blah. But also personal tragedy has taught me that you can grieve. Right. Mm-hmm. And that you can lay down and close the curtains and pull the bed sheets over your head and hide yeah. <laughs> for as long as you want. As long as you want. I think that's what it as is. As long yeah. as you want. Yeah. That that is okay. Yeah. You know, that, you know what, if you don't get up on that eighth time, it doesn't mean you're a sack of shit. Right. You know, right. it just means you're human and it hurts. You know, and, and I, I, have, I have learned to be okay with that too. That when I have failed, corporately or in professionally rather that I can sit with that you know and sometimes the beating up of myself actually feels good (laughs) 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 you know that I can sit there and be like you're never gonna have another good idea and I'm like I know I know I'm not (laughs) 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 you know and that you can wallow in it a little bit for me and I think all of us obviously have our own you know, timetable on how long you can do that help me and be in a healthy space. For right. me, I could, I could do it for a couple of days. Yeah. Yeah. And then I start to feel sick of myself. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, come on. Yeah. You got to get out. You get tired of hearing yourself talk. Yeah. I get tired of hearing myself complain. Yeah. Then, all right. Well, get up because you got to go figure out the next thing, you know, or, or somebody who you know, doesn't, doesn't like me. I struggle with that. You know, there's, there's, um, I, I like to be liked. Yeah. And so when I'm in situations in which I feel like somebody doesn't like me or doesn't like the things I have to say, I take that very personally mm-hmm. and I want to fix it. And sometimes, you know what? You're just not going to be liked. Yeah. You know? right. And and that's hard. I mean, that's hard for adults. It's hard for kids. And you have a child, right? You have a daughter? Yes. Have a how, daughter. how old is she? She's 10. She's 10. Yes. So like, that's like the, you know, this is like, I'm dreading the first moment that my kid comes home and it's just like, they don't like me or somebody was mean yeah. to me and just said straight out, like, I don't like you or like, yes, you're, I know. Oh, you're ugly or like, whatever. Cause then I'm going to uh, be like, <gasps> whatever it's going to be. And because it's going to be horrible because kids are horrible. That the same way <laughs> that I talk to them is the same way that I need to talk to myself. Right. Yeah. And that's really yeah. hard, right? On that just very yeah. basic, fundamental, like human level, because I think no matter what your age, everybody wants to be liked. Yeah. Whether they you can admit be liked. it. Yeah. Yeah. You want to be liked. And and that is is hard for me, especially in the face of racism and sexism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, especially professionally, where I'm just it it still confuses me and still baffles me. It still gives me pause. When I face something and I'm just like, wait a minute, is that, is that a rational dislike or like, did I do something to you or you just don't like me because of how I look? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's so frustrating. 
Because then, obviously, it's not just about the liking. It's that I can't get my job done or I can't move the project forward. I can't close that deal. Oh, right. Because, because that feels like the first hurdle. It's like you have to feel like you're connecting to somebody and they're respecting uh-huh. you for who you are and they're accepting you for who you are before you're ever going to get to the next uh-huh. step of the conversation. Yeah. Um, so but part of that resiliency is that for me, it's like, okay, listen, I'm going to try. I'm always going to try to connect. Mm-hmm. And if I don't connect, what I have now learned, what I'm getting better at, is moving on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's like, I'm not going to win everybody. Right. You can't be everything to everybody. Yeah. No. And so if I'm not winning with you and there's some irrational reason as to why I'm not winning right. with you and irrational being racism, sexism, any isms. Right. Then I'm moving on. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to convince you. You know, I'm not going to waste my time trying to convince you that all black people <laughs> are not fill in the blank right. or all women are not fill in the blank. Like I'm not, I'm not going to waste my time. Yeah. I'll, I, I'll find somebody else. And you're it's not okay. going to make yourself small in order to fit into someone no. else's like little, you know, cubby of no. how that they can no. work with you. Yeah. And that's why I also butt up against the idea and the notion and really reject the notion. Usually when I'm in, you know, professional corporate spaces that I am the voice of everybody black for all women, for something. You're not? No pressure. I've been looking to you this whole time. (laughs) I know, right? I mean, I know I got a big personality, but Uh, damn, it's only one personality. It's uh, not, you know, bringing 100 million. Yeah, right. But you know, it's just, it's like, we got to reject that, right? It's like, listen, I don't don't represent everyone. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I'm not going to spend the energy trying to educate everybody else and, whatever spaces I'm in on what it's like to be me or to be somebody like me. So the person that I come up against who has whatever issues or biases or blah, 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 that's not letting me through sometimes. And you know, it is sometimes a case by case, to be honest, again, total transparency. Sometimes I do decide that I'm, I'm going to be the one who's going to break through because you need a breakthrough. <laughs> 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 or sometimes I'm just like, you know what? This is too much time. I can't. I'm not dealing with you today. And you're just going to have to sit in your own racism and your own sexism. And somebody else, <laughs> and have somebody to else can deal with that. It's yeah. not, not going to be me today. You know? <laughs> but, some, but sometimes I do take it on. You know, when I took my job at Uber, I, I was taking that on. I took yeah. that on personally. But yeah, I decided, to take, I decided to take it on when I was at Uber because, I, quite frankly, I felt like, it, well, first of all, there, weren't, there wasn't anyone else. <laughs> Right. There wasn't right. anyone else. At the time, Uber was going through a lot of, what, what do I want to even call it? It was, it was a lot of, it was crisis. Yeah. Turmoil. Yeah. yeah. Crisis within the company and crisis within the industry yeah. that showed up and was placed on the company. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What year? When, when were you there? In, uh, when was I there? It was like what year are we in? It's 19 now. <laughs> it was like, years like, like 16 I think or 2017. 17. Yeah. I think yeah, 2017. Okay. Yeah. 2017 yeah. into 2018. Yeah. Yeah. 2017, 2018. So it was right at the middle of the crisis of, you know, delete sexual Uber. harassment yeah. claims and delete Uber. And, you know, it's like there's no diversity at the top and all of these other yeah. things. It yeah. was like this yeah, Uber was taking all the punches mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. really what were and are not just industry ills, not just Silicon Valley industry ills, but really corporate yeah. industry ills. Mm-hmm. 
And it's not like that ends it at Uber. Right. It was like, yeah, oh my yeah, God, are you right kidding place, me? Right time. Yeah. 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 So, but at the time it was like, well, what other and who other is senior enough, right? Within Silicon Valley is black and is a woman who could go in there mm-hmm, right. and take that job. There was literally no one. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you know what? I will be at that. I guess I'll be there. Right. And then it didn't work out. And I mean, no, what, what kind girl. of prompted the decision to, to then move on to Endeavor? Ah, saving myself. Yeah. yeah. That's what happened. You know, I, I refuse to sacrifice myself. Yeah. That's right. and, and again, we all have to realize that on our own time, at our own place. And I felt the pressure of having said publicly, that I wanted to be the one, right? Who comes in and helps to champion change and champion diversity while doing my job, while uh, doing my day job. Right. Which was, you know, of course, in hindsight, I realized how much I was taking on mm-hmm. and how probably unrealistic it was because the job of being the chief brand officer for anyone else, mm-hmm. for a white man in that space would have been difficult. Mm-hmm. So right. It was a hard job. It was a hard job, hard psychologically, hard physically, mm-hmm. hard emotionally. It was just a hard job. And then on top of that, to try and take on all of the ills and conversations around diversity and inclusion and speaking at every single summit. I mean, it was just, it was just a lot. Yeah. And yeah. I woke up literally one day and I was like, I can't do this. Like, this is it's too much much yeah. I don't and I don't want to do it um, and so against some advice I was like I'm out of here <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm, I'm gone I'm going on to the next thing and it was magical for me actually because it also I think for me and, and hopefully other people who were watching at the time or who you know were sort of you know looking and paying attention I hope it was a lesson yeah you know that you can actually do that that it's okay. Right. And that like, you don't have to stick it out for anyone. Who are you sticking it out for? Right, right. And if you're not sticking it out for you, then there's no point. And do you have yeah, any... Who are they going to prove it to? Yeah, yourself. That's all. But do you have yeah. any major regrets from that, the, you know, the time you spent there? No. No. I'm, I'm still glad yeah. to have been there. Yeah. Really. I think the year that I was there taught me a lot about myself. Mm-hmm. You know, poignantly when we talked about uh, sort of the self-talk or the encouragement and all of that, that was probably the loneliest job I've ever had. Hmm. You know, in that I really didn't have any allies. Yeah. In That's the uh, worst in any really work environment. Oh, terrible. Oh, my God. Terrible. So there, weren't, there weren't people that I could go to with yeah. anything. Right. You know, not about the work or the job, not yeah. about like what I was struggling with that I could trust. Right. And that, that was really, really tough because, um, well, one, as we all know, I mean, we're human beings. We want to connect. As you talked about, you know, the sort of running team here, you know, we want to connect with other people. And I, I, I didn't have anyone. And as a senior executive, having been liked a lot. Right. <laughs> at different companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, while I was at Uber, being not just liked, like adored by the outside. Right. Yeah. yeah. You got a lot of to love. Not ha- to not have anyone on the inside. Yeah. God, that hurt. Yeah. It hurt 
so much and I felt so lonely. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was also the biggest lesson in that I was not only able to survive in the job, but actually get some wins. Yeah. And that was based on, you know, like relying on myself, relying on my, my own ideas. And again, just go, going back to the idea of resiliency, you know, being able to get up every day and go and motivate my team, you know, even regardless of what anyone else said, yeah. you know, and, and getting the nose or the look, you know, and being like, Ooh, God, that's not going to work out. How am I going to tell these folks to keep going? <laughs> so that they keep going with the idea. <laughs> you know? The spin. You know, uh-huh. turn us around. Yeah. Turn it into a positive. Yeah. You know, it was like, it was just, it was such a lesson. So I think personally, uh, I don't regret having been there. Yeah. You know, professionally, uh, I wish I had spent my time working on something else. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. But personally, it was, it was a good lesson. Good yeah. lesson. So I do want to touch a little bit on um, the personal experiences that you've had because you've spoken very openly about your experiences with loss and with grief over your husband. And I think it's, you know, it's obviously a huge component of our experience is really how to cope with those types of experiences and move past them. And I think I would just, we would love to hear from you on how, what that experience really meant to you um, in terms of how it, informed your life after that and, and what you've been able to take from it? Yeah. Well, um, when my husband was diagnosed with cancer, uh, it was Burkitt's lymphoma that he was diagnosed with. And it was in May of uh, 2013. And that year <laughs> was the year that I helped lead the marketing efforts for, on behalf of PepsiCo for Beyonce's Super Bowl halftime show. It was one of the greatest successes from my time there. Um, well, actually, it was probably my biggest success, actually. And so it was coming off of that. My daughter was almost four. I just felt invincible, you know? And my husband did too. He's in, he was in, in advertising and marketing as well and doing really well. You know, we were just living in New York, in Manhattan with our kids. You know, going to have brunches on Saturdays with friends and, <laughs> you know, going to restaurants and concerts. You were just living our best lives. Yeah. And unfortunately, neither of us were strangers to cancer. Both of our mothers uh, had been, had battled and survived breast cancer. Mm-hmm. At the time, uh, and actually I don't talk about this that much actually, which I probably should, but my, my mother was on her second bout mm-hmm. and she was, uh, had been diagnosed with um, uterine cancer just let's see, three months before Peter was diagnosed with Burkitt's lymphoma. And I had, she was living in Colorado, so I'd moved her to New Jersey um, so that I could, it could be easier, you know, for me to help take care of her while I worked and wife and mothered and yeah. all of that. And then Peter got diagnosed. Mm-hmm. And it was just, I, it just, it just felt like the whole world had cancer. Yeah. <laughs> it was yeah. like when your mother and your husband both have cancer, it, it, it just, it just, it felt impossible. Yeah. It was like, what are the odds? And so I would be shuttling between her hospital in New Jersey and his 
in New York City from treatment to treatment, doctor to doctor, and still doing my job. It was just insane. It was an insane time. And you know what? So actually, I don't think I've ever told this story in that it was probably, I think it was probably like June of that year. It was shortly after Peter had been diagnosed. And we didn't yet know that his cancer was terminal. Uh, we thought that he could, uh, it could be treated, that he could beat it. And I was flying from some award show uh, and I had my laptop and I was working away on the plane uh, trying to escape, you know, the thoughts of like my yeah. mother and, and Peter. By the way, I've never left like a bag anywhere or I'm just not one of those people. You know, I don't leave things places. I left not only my laptop, I left my carry-on. I, I literally walked off the plane with my purse. Oh, man. <laughs> like, <laughs> I walked off the plane with my purse. <clears throat> and I got in the cab <laughs> and I went home. And I walked in the door as if I had just come from the office. Yeah. I walked in the door. I remember Peter looking at me and being like, where's your stuff? And I was like, oh, shit. Oh my God! <laughs> <laughs> I jumped all my on the plane, and then I went into hyper panic mode. Right, I was calling the airline. When I tell you that, you know, it's like when you put all of your energy that should be over here, you put it into something else because you're distracted. You know what I mean? Or you're just uh, psychologically just trying to move it somewhere else, right? Take it out on something else. Yes, exactly. Ooh, the way I abuse <laughs> these airline people. Oh my God! Oh, oh I mean, I I gave it to them. You know, and I was angry and I was, oh, I was upset. Oh, I was, I was screaming about my laptop (laughs) and about some like toothpaste. (laughs) You know what I mean? And it was, I remember hanging up the phone and just being so frustrated because they were, you know, they were telling you all the things that they normally tell you, right? Oh, we have to fill out this form and. Maybe in the next 48 hours, it will be reported and you can go to JFK and try to identify it, you know? And I was just like, give me an answer! Yeah. Why is there no solution? <laughs> you know? And I remember hanging up that from that call and just crying. I mean, I cried like my soul was leaving me. Yeah. You know? And after that, I called my boss and I asked for time off. I asked if I could take uh, some leave. Because I was like, I, I can't, I can't do it. You know, I just can't. Yeah. And aside from everything else, I mean, you know, those, those months of like my mom battling and Peter declining were lessons in also being vulnerable and asking for help. Yeah. And, and knowing that, you know what, if I left my bag and my laptop on an airplane, I'm probably going to lose my mind at some point. You know, if I just reach out and get some help from somebody, yeah. you know, ask my community. And for me, since then, even through Peter's death uh, that year, uh, he passed away in December of 2016. Mm-hmm. And when he died, I, I, had to, I had to ask for a lot of help. You know, I had to ask for a lot of help. And I was, I was not and still find it very difficult mm-hmm. to ask for help. You know, and I'm talking about the basics. Yeah. You know, and I'm talking about like, you know, can you get me some groceries? Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. can you come help me clean up? Yeah. Because these dishes in the sink are not going to get done. It's not never the big stuff. You know what I mean? It's not like, help me figure out 
the will. Right. <laughs> you know, it was like, just help me with the small help things. Me put one and, foot in front of the other. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was, I was both surprised by the fact that people were really willing to help. People were really willing to pitch in and come in. It's if you ask them. You know, it's like everybody says the line, right? Something happens bad to somebody. What do we say? Let me know if you need anything. Yeah. What the hell that's with me? You know, like, <laughs> you, know, you need me. Listen, it has been the biggest lesson for me, by the way. Even now, like should something befall somebody, right? Yeah. It could be that they're sick or, you know, not even as serious as death. But like something happens, you know, instead of sending the text that says, let me know if you need anything or I'm right here. Or call le- me. Or let me know if you want to talk. Uh, no, that is the worst. Girl, listen, that's a, no. So now I'm more specific. I'm more intentional. Right. Yeah. You no, know, I say things like I'm going to form the committee to come and do your dishes. Yeah. Give right. me the no name one's gonna of say two no. of your. Yeah. Give me the name of two of your closest friends that you don't mind seeing your dirty dishes. Okay. I will call them. We're <laughs> going to create a schedule. We'll be over there every day at six p.m. All right. Somebody will wash those dishes. By the time I get over to the house and you look around, you're like, you need me to run to the store. Because the milk is bad, you know. <laughs> Any anything, but it is. It has been such a a gift, you know. Even in in Peter's death, um, such a gift in this life mm-hmm. to be able to have that kind of not just empathy and understanding of self, and also the urgency of wanting to like live my own life, but also in that. You know, I am, I'm really, I'm really open. I, we have this life, you know, even if you believe in reincarnation, it's like, well, this, this life is one that you have. Right. You may have another, one, but right. this one that we're right now in this body and in this experience at this time, this is what I have. And I, I want to make the best of it. Yeah. You know, so I have become less fearful about, you know, what is going to happen. You know, I, I want I want what is happening right now to be really great. You know, it's made me a better mother to my to my daughter. You know, in that like I don't I'm not waiting for seventh grade in order to do the thing that we're going to do. Right. You know, I take on the trips, I have the conversations, you know, about the hard stuff. Uh we are definitely more open. Mm-hmm. She sees crying. I, I Gone are those, you know, that moment where you're just like, oh, yes, I'm the strong mother. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. You're going to see this not coming out of my nose. Right. Okay? Right. You're going to see me in this pain, and you're going to see me try to work it out. And when I can't work it out, you're going to see me call my therapist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. All of those things. But it has, it has been a, a real lesson for me. Constant, by the way. So yeah. It's not as if it ends. You know, that's another thing about grief that I've learned uh, when people say, well, you know, how did you how did you overcome it or how did you get over it or and I'm like ooh, ooh, right ooh, get over it yeah no there's no getting over it's like I'm sitting right here it's right it's, it's back to analogy about the yeah. water and the resiliency listen that joint sometimes it's sinking down into the bottom of the tub and sometimes it's right here yeah looking at me in the eye and I'm like can you move please <laughs> I just I'd have a peaceful bath. I don't. I don't need this bumping up against my nose. You know? <laughs> so I. I. But I. Like I said, it's 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 a it's a real gift. I mean, it's taken a long time. You know, Peter uh, has been gone for almost six years, and some days it feels like, golly, like how did six 
years. Six years? Yeah. That's a long time. And and sometimes it really doesn't feel like that at all. You know, I, I just actually, my daughter and I just moved into a new house and we're unpacking some stuff. You know, so of course, so we unpacking for a while. <laughs> but unpacking some stuff and I found this mug that he used to really love. Can you believe that? Like, I've been traveling with this mug. I, I don't even know where, it, where, like, literally how it came about. But literally, it was just this past weekend. I take it out of the, out of the, like, I unwrap it, right, from its wrappings. I look at it. I'm just like, oh, my God. My first thought was, I have to put this somewhere so he can use it. Oh, man. That was literally my first thought. Yeah. was like, oh, God, I got to put this. And then I was like, like, he's never, he's never going to use that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's never, it's never going to be. It was like, why do I have it? You know, yeah. and so I got rid of it. You, you know? did, and um, yeah, got rid of it, huh. which was quite a breakthrough, to tell you. But for me, I think all of those moments, you know, I'm still working them out. Yeah, there are there are days and certain things, of course, that I will not get rid of, right? <laughs> but there's certain things that you're just like, well, why are you holding on to that? Mm-hmm. What are you holding on to it for? Right. Yeah, it can't be used, you know, and it will be used. So, Hi. I mean, yeah, it's tough. I've heard you talk a little bit about this, you know, in another interview, and um, you had this moment where you were just like, you know, you know, and I'm like really oversimplifying here, but it was just like this just choose, at the end of the day, like you just have to can choose joy, you know? Yeah. And right. I thought that was really interesting and I, I have like it seems like since you've said that it keeps coming up for me mm. I keep hearing other people talk about it in different ways mm. um, but I was just wondering I mean like how do you do that literally just very practically like do you yeah. like meditate on this stuff are you taking time yeah. to like retrain your brain is it part of your therapy Absolutely. is it like because it's easy obviously yeah. to say choose joy and I think yeah. when people hear that they think like well what the fuck does that mean you know but then it's yeah. like okay well you have to like sit with it and think on it and there you know you have to create some space for it yeah. but yeah. do you have any practical kind of like takeaways Girl. in terms of how you apply yes. that yeah I do in fact just this morning just this morning <laughs> I was I woke up I knew I was getting up on the wrong side of bed. I climbed right back into bed. <laughs> That's what I call I choosing joy. <laughs> no, really. No, yes. I, I, I promise on everything. Like literally, I got up and I was like, I feel like shit today. Like I do not. And by the way, no reason for it. Right. Like nothing happened to me yesterday. There's nothing on my calendar today that would require me to not to want to go. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was, it was, I didn't feel like there was anything that I could point to and be like, oh, um, you know, but I felt it. You know, we feel yeah, it. Totally but I feel felt it. it. I was like, this is going to be a bad day. That is what, that is what I felt. Yeah. And I sat my ass back down on that bed. And I, my form of meditation is I pray, mm-hmm. you know, so I just, I closed my eyes. I just said, Lord, you know, I just, I just want to remember that I prayed to be here at this very moment in time. You know, I prayed for all of the things that I have. I prayed for a great job in which I love the people. I prayed for this beautiful home that I'm in. I prayed for a satisfied child who is loving and wonderful. I prayed for good friends. 
I prayed for this makeup that I'm about to put on my face, okay? I prayed for this lack of wrinkles that I thank you at 42 that I don't have, all right? I prayed for all of this stuff, and yeah. I want to feel grateful today. Like, fill my heart with joy. Fill my heart with gratitude. And then I got up, yeah. you know? But, like, it is, it is a, like, it's a practical application. It's funny. If you talk to my assistant, she will tell you that sometimes, you know, she'll like to say things, okay? Probably listening right now. <laughs> say things, you know, sometimes it's Oh, this is going to be a hard day. And I'm like, no, don't say that. Don't say that. It is time for us to have a great day. Yeah. This day is going to be fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> That's choosing joy. That is. It is. I think no matter what you call it, if it's prayer, if it's meditation, it's, I mean, you said I asked to be here and it is, it's gratitude in whatever form it is. Yeah. But that small, um, just acknowledgement and an effort in just naming it. Like you said, yes. all of these lists of things, like it's not going to happen of- immediately. And sometimes it takes a minute to get there and it, it might not end up looking the way you want it to, but it at least is helping you down the path. That's absolutely so. right. That's absolutely right. You know, it may not change whatever you're facing for the day, right? Because there are some days when, yes, there is something on the schedule or something happened to you yesterday or, you know, you know, there's something that has happened that does not make you feel joyful. Yeah. And even through those moments, I really do try to concentrate and, and figure out what are the joyful things that are either happening in that situation or in my life that will help to balance that out. You know, because not everything is doom and gloom. I think that's when we start to really be, a, you know, that's when that negative self-talk and all of those you know, other ills come up is when we think everything is doom and gloom and it's not. It never is. You know, and not everything is always joy, but definitely, for sure, not everything is gloom. So. Okay. Well, <laughs> I wish we could keep talking forever because it's just joyful just to sit here and listen to you. Um, this has been so wonderful. You Thank guys are you so awesome. much. You've yeah. been so generous you. with your time. Thank you for this wonderful conversation. You guys are, are just, I love this conversation. <laughs> I feel like I was talking to two friends. It wasn't, it didn't feel like any kind of interview. And I, Aww. I, I appreciate that for sure. Very, very grateful. Oh, for that. Good. thank you. Thank we you so much, Rob. You are and continue oh, to guys. be inspiring. <laughs> I don't want to go. <laughs> hang out the rest of the day. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> <Please. laughs> Welcome to come see you in LA. And you come play in New York. Yes. Yeah. See me? Come to my house. Maybe oh, I'll but... be unpacked by then. <laughs> <laughs> sounds perfect. It sounds perfect. Thank okay. you so much, Bose. It's thank so you nice guys. to connect. Okay. Okay. All Bye. Right. Bye. Thanks for listening to HTW. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and make sure and rate us on iTunes. You can even give us five whole stars if you think we deserve it. If you have ideas for guests or topics, you can call our 1-800 number. Yes, we have a 1-800 number at 800-674-1839 or holler at us on social at HTW Podcast. You can also head to our website at hgwpodcast.com for more episode info and check out our Daily Blend blog to see what we're drinking.